God's grace, mercy, and peace to all of you. Thank you for joining. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of First Samuel. We have been looking at the drama between Saul and David, a Christ and an antichrist, an anointed one and <laughs> an anointed one who is anti, the true anointed one. We have Saul uh, anointed to be king, but of course in his great apostasy and his impenitence in his uh, not faithful but pragmatic approach to all things. God has, he has left God in the background with exception to uh, lip service only and with exception to a kind of false, brief, self-serving repentance. And thus Saul has his entire ego and soul bent on attacking the anointed one, the truly anointed one, um, with whom is the Holy Spirit, and that's, that's David. So we have the Antichrist attacking the Christ here in this text. Let me see if I can try to uh, bring us up to speed briefly. Of course, um, the atrocity of Saul killing the priests that had helped David, thinking they were helping Saul, um, but of course, in fact, uh, David was not with Saul. David was being pursued by Saul. And so Saul has these priests slaughtered. We see David saving the city of Calah and then inquiring of God whether they will hand him over to Saul. And indeed, they will. So David can hardly, uh, what's the saying? No no good deed goes unpunished. Boy, that was true of the priests. That's true then of David. And in through uh, the end of 23 and into 24, we left off in the middle of paragraph, or skip paragraph, chapter 24, where uh, David spares Saul's life for the first time. Of course, Saul was pursuing David, had entered into a cave to use the restroom, as it were, and uh, David <laughs> was hiding in there and had opportunity to kill him. And in fact, mm, his own men told him, hey, this is it. The Lord has, has delivered him into your hands. Yeah, this is an astonishing thing. And David, such a, such a high level of integrity, chooses to show mercy and his, his conscience so highly attuned to God, so highly attuned to the office of God that, that Saul, despite all his, his own personal failings and despite his murderous attitude toward David, David so respects God and so respects the office of the anointed one that David's conscience is even troubled by the fact that he cuts a piece of Saul's robe off. And he shows Saul the robe and says, you know, look, I've, I could have killed you. 
And then where we left off, chapter 24, verse, you know, verse 14, 15, he says, Look, why are you attacking? I haven't done anything. This is David speaking to Saul. I haven't done anything wrong to you. Why are you attacking me? I don't think he says it this bluntly, but I've done nothing but good to you. Why are you paying my good with evil? And as David actually puts it, you know, look, why are you, why are you pursuing me? You're pursuing someone who's a dead dog, like utterly, utterly harmless and worthless. This is a waste of your time after a dead dog, after a flea. That's verse 14 of chapter 24. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I mean, David so beautifully here puts a petition to just end the feud. Yeah, just end this, this godless personal pursuit. Now, very interesting, uh, Saul's response to this. And this, this, as best as I can tell, leads us into the new material for today. So, chapter 24, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. <laughs> now, keep a finger there. Let's drop down to the study note. Um, you'll, get, you'll get, I think it's Luther's take on this. So Saul returns the affections of David, but his tears are those of regret. Uh, and though these feelings quickly give, but these feelings quickly give ones to ba- give way to baser ones. Easy for you to say. Sorry, I'm stumbling and bumbling here. Um, but yeah, his his tears are those of regret, but they quickly give way to baser ones. And here's Luther's point: This is the way hypocrites act. <laughs> so. Luther cuts to the chase. They feign friendship until an opportunity to inflict harm presents itself. Hmm. And then Chemnitz, the second Martin, the second great Lutheran uh, theologian, has this to say, the repentance does not consist only in recognizing or confessing their sins and certainly not in persevering or continuing in them. Saul returned to his vomit and again persecuted David. That reference to a dog always returning to its vomit. So Saul returned to his vomit and again persecuted David. Scripture says we must certainly cease from evil and desist from sinning. For what kind of nonsense is it to devise for ourselves a license to sin? Mm. Two really, really pertinent comments from Luther and from Chemnitz, the two Martins, that are well worth our time uh, pondering, particularly as Lutheran Christians, as we see Uh, a lawlessness circling around us both outside the church and inside the church. And here you have, uh, you know, it's interesting because the, sorry, this was my pauses. I've I've been thinking about this in the back of my mind and I'm about to present you some half-baked bread here. So you'll have to, you'll have to pardon with me. Uh, You have to pardon me. 
as I, as I sort of uh, stumble through these thoughts, but maybe you'll recognize some truth and maybe you'll have your own improvements in your own mind and that's, that's well and good. Uh, but I was noticing, and I'm sure you have too, that in the, in, the, in the secular milieu of our country right now, there's such, a, there's such an intolerance and such a lack of compassion and such a legalism on the, on the parts of those um, who are championing what? What are they championing? What is their legalism? Is it legalism for legalism's sake? Is it righteousness for righteousness' sake, even if that righteousness is defined uh, in such a peculiar way? No, no. That legalism is there to support lawlessness. Now here we get wrangled up in our heads over the terms and maybe we as Lutherans are particularly susceptible to this, I don't know. But, but the bottom line is, is the strictness of their code serves the lawlessness theologically defined. What do I mean by that? Sin, the scriptures say, is anomia, lawlessness. And what the people in our country today want to do, I'm talking specifically about the, about the left, the radical progressive left. Which seems to be, you know, more and more a majority of the left. But is, is their agenda, is what they're driving, is it, not the, is it not the breakdown of the family? Is it not the breakdown of traditional marriage? Is it not breakdown of the very sexes, man and woman, that God created? That male and woman shall leave father and man and woman shall leave father and mother, and the two shall be united in one flesh, and that one flesh should be children. Are they not advocating the breakdown of this very thing and then the, the abortion of those children? And then all manner of sexual lawlessness. So, it's become this, it's become this, uh, in Lutheranism, it's like all we can see and decree ever since the, well, I don't know, it's like the 20th century Lutheran disease is all we can do is decree legalism wherever we see it. And so in this, in this really shallow and myopic, quote-unquote, Lutheran viewpoint, you just screech about the legalism of the left not realizing that the legalism of the left is only is of the progressive left is only there to is only there to serve the the anomia the lawlessness the complete immorality and overturn of God's order of and then order and morality go hand in hand the order of creation and the law written in men's hearts and the will of God these are all one they all go hand in hand neither the scriptures nor the larger and small catechisms, nor the, nor the Book of Concord stutter on these points whatsoever. Neither did the church fathers for crying out loud. Boy, they were even way more rigid on these points. And as society around them was completely godless and openly pagan, they were all the more rigid against it. So that whatever we might say about the legalism around us, it's really only there to preserve the anomia, which is the true goal.
So backtracking then to, to these thoughts by Luther and Chemnitz, maybe specifically starting with Chemnitz, the repentance does not consist only in recognizing or confessing their sins and certainly not in persevering or continuing in them. Saul returned to his vomit and again persecuted David. Scripture says we must certainly cease from evil and desist from sinning. For what kind of nonsense is it to devise for ourselves a license to sin? Which is exactly the disease that's inflicted late 20th century, early 21st century Lutheranism, and I think, I think by and large so much of Christendom here in the West, is the anomia around us has infected us in the church. And then we've constructed this, this theology of pessimism and doom and, uh, doom and gloom to where the base, the base assumption is that we cannot cease from evil, cannot desist from sinning, not whatsoever. And then it, uh, it perversely becomes a mark and badge of orthodoxy to boast that I'm no better or no different than an unbeliever. Whereas Paul, whereas Paul says those two things, are the difference is between light and darkness. What fellowship is light, does light have with darkness? But here we have come to the exact opposite of that. We have come to devise a theology where no one is allowed to get better or think he's getting better without that somehow being works righteousness, without that somehow being a glory theology, without that somehow being reformed or evangelical theology. I mean, these are all the labels that are, that are placed upon this, this idea that one can, in fact, be and act less evil, be and act less sinful. But if all those labels fit us, then they also have to fit Chemnitz. Because look what Chemnitz says. We must certainly cease from evil and desist from sinning. And he doesn't, he doesn't mean in the, that, we, that we finally reach this stage of Christian perfection in this life. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying the Christian life is one of, of putting these evil and sin to death daily in us so that daily we're, we're ceasing from these things. But of course, this isn't Chemnitz. Chemnitz is saying scripture. And he's piggybacking off this comment of Luther I mean, thus the editors of the study Bible put these comments right, right next to each other. You know, it's hypocritical to feign friendship and then inflict harm. Just as it's hypocritical to say one repents, to weep with the tears of, of Saul, and then go right back to the very thing you were weeping about. I think, I think those souls that are stuck in some kind of uh, like habitual sin or besetting sin are especially pricked by this. But 
the bottom line is you need to seek the healing of your soul. You need to seek healing from this. And we can't, we can't build a theology around habitual or besetting sin that A, makes the assumption that that's normal or healthy, and then B, contorts all of scripture around that so that in the end, the orthodoxy is mistaken as remain in your sins but feel bad about it. This is one of the, this is one of the, this is probably the greatest spiritual illness in the, in the Lutheran church that I've grown up in, that I myself am, in some respects have been a, a product of. Is, I mean, how, how eye-opening uh, to read the formula of Concord <laughs> without fear, to read the scriptures without fear where they actually talk about a progression and a maturation and a putting aside of sins. And, and then you actually start to believe this instead of kind of what the Lutheran church around you has taught you. And you start to believe these things and you see like... Boy, you see the darkness. The darkness that has infected the church. And the darkness that has infected the world around us. So I know I've done a fair share of sermonizing here on this point, but we need to pay attention to the false tears of Saul. And I, I snicker a little bit, I scoff a little bit, because do, do, do people even feign the tears anymore? Or do we live in such a, such a lawless age where there's not even feigned tears, or there's not even short-lived tears? There's just the as the scriptures say, the forehead of the prostitute, just the bold brazenness, no shame in being a sinner. Isn't that interesting how in some Lutheran circles the divine service confession, I a poor miserable sinner, is not said with a lick of shame, but in fact has come to be said with a bizarre pride, as if we're confessing, I'm right. I've got the right doctrine of sin. And so the confession isn't even a confession anymore, but a boast that we Lutherans understand depravity and, and no one else does. So what is meant to be a humbling of the soul before God becomes a theological boast before men. What is meant to be taking the lowest seat becomes an act of taking the highest seat. What is meant to be a pure moment of make atonement for me has become a moment of I thank God that I'm, I'm, I'm better than others. I'm better than this other man. Well, as we go back to the scriptures, and to our true fathers in the faith, Luther and Chemnitz, obviously included, we see encouragement and admonition to return to a purer spirituality, a purer theology, truth be told, and to 
ever and increasingly separate ourselves from the anomia we see in the church and in the, and in the world around us. Even if a certain legalism is used to prop that up, it's, it's only for the purpose, the ultimate end goal of anomia. And that's all I have to say about that, much to your relief, no doubt. Well, Saul is lifting up his voice. He's weeping in verse 16. Verse 17, he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord. Gosh, okay, let me stop there. Put, put your finger on verse 21 so I can stop. Now, I didn't really read this with a fine-tooth comb, but I think you can get the impression that if Saul would just stop right there and then stop pursuing David... This would, be, like, this would be a fine statement. This would be a true repentance. But I think, it's, I think it's already here in verse 21 that you see the self-interest starting to creep back in. And then, of course, as you, just, as you flip the page, you realize that, that this repentance doesn't last but two seconds. And there's really no desire on the part of Saul to humble himself before God or, or to uh, stop pursuing this, this obvious and manifest sin. But, I mean, this is, otherwise, I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. And he acknowledges that David is to be the king. All right, and then verse 21, I think it starts to go a little south. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. You know, that's, I think, the key, sadly. Don't. I mean, I, I, you know, don't wipe out my, don't war against my house. Why would he if he's not warring against uh, Saul himself? I think it has more to do with reputation. Thus, my name out of my father's house. You know, Saul is trying to secure his reputation. I, th- I think that that's really what's going on there. So more egotism, more self-centeredness from Saul. Verse 22, and David swore this to Saul. So, I mean... Gosh, good guy David again. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Verse 25, just so understated for a book named after him and for such the the huge and prominent role that Samuel has played um, up to this point, albeit it's been diminished somewhat now as as Saul and David and this this hostile uh, hostility on the part of Saul has taken center stage in the text, but Chapter 25, verse 1, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And why I say overstated is, or understated is, it's just, it's just stuck here. I mean, between, uh, between David 
and Saul in the cave, and then this next uh, text with David and Abigail, which is interesting to say the least. Now, your study note on Samuel dying points out um, that this, this is earlier, perhaps uh, 1031 BC, with Samuel's death is lost, this trusted mouthpiece of the Lord, and the last living link with the age of the judges. In many respects, even though Samuel's sons did, it does, the text says, does say they did some judges, most reckon, they did some judging, excuse me, most reckon Samuel as the last judge. And so you can see how the judges give way to the kings, you know, right here at this, at this moment. Yeah, and that's why they're saying, too, like earlier, perhaps 1031 B.C., one of the biggest problems, and I haven't touched on it too much, maybe just a time or two in this text, but one of the, one of the big, quote-unquote, problems, at least from our mon- modern viewpoint, is the chronology of Samuel and just how to make sense of it. I mean, not even trying to be, like, hostile or uh, just how do, how do you make sense of the, of the chronology. It's a, it's a text like so many in the Scriptures that just chronology isn't as important as theme. And maybe we're becoming more accustomed, rightfully so, to seeing, seeing the Gospels, uh, the New Testament Gospels that way, that chronology just is second place to theme in their, in their style of writing. Um, we might have this sort of bias where we look at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and think of them as under the heading that's commonly given them, historical books. And thus, if we, we assume that, well, if they're historical, then they, that means chronology is the first interest. And so then we see these texts as like weak or lacking or manipulated or later edited or something like that. None of that needs to be the case. It's just they're, they're much more interested in presenting the material theologically than they are with a strict chronology. <coughs> okay, so... Maybe that's all we need to say on that. And then uh, on into David and Abigail. So latter half of verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. All right, so I don't know. Put your finger on Nabal. Um, there, uh, where are we? Looks like just, just in verse 3. Drop down to the study note. Nabal literally means fool. And I think, yes, the study note is, yeah, this is where it points it out. His name and behavior suggest that our Lord may have alluded to him in the parable of the rich fool. Remember the parable of the rich fool, Luke chapter 12? Um, he's, uh, yeah, this may, this may well be Nabal that he's referring to, this actual historical person that then our Lord takes and uh, makes into a parable. Okay, so back to the text. The name of the man was Nabal, fool. <laughs> and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness, yeah, Calebite, descendant of Caleb, who was promised territory, study note says, in this region because of his faithful services in espionage. You remember Caleb was one of the spies who originally went over to the promised land. Numbers 14 is the reference given. You can check that out if you're super interested in 
the Calebites. Uh, then verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Okay, well, this, this may strike us as a strange request, and I suppose, I suppose um, may, maybe in some respects it is, because, because we don't have the same idea, ideas of hospitality. We don't have the same ideas of kinship and feast days. I mean, maybe it's overstating the case, like, to, to put it this way. But, it's, you know, imagine if it's, if it's Christmas Day and, uh, and here this man who's already profoundly rich is going and gathering more riches. And even if, even if you were to just say, would you please, my men are out in the wilderness, we're starving, we're hungry, we have no way to have festivities on this feast day, would you please just provide for us? I mean, out of the abundance of his riches, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? Jesus says, you know, of the one who wants to borrow from you, give. So why, so why wouldn't he? Um, and, then, and then David seems to wrap up a couple other points in here, though very subtly and, and tastefully done. In the first place, hey, look, we didn't plunder you. <laughs> maybe, that's not, <laughs> maybe that's not the most moral argument. But look, we didn't plunder you. But in this language of uh, we, we were with you. Yeah, see, uh, verse 7, now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm. We didn't, we didn't plunder them. But being with us, and, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel, that seems to imply protection. Now, look, we were looking out for you and your flocks. You didn't know it. You were off doing your own thing. But ask your shepherds. You know, whereas you probably lose something to raiders, nothing was lost to raiders. We were with your shepherds. We didn't take anything from them. We protected them. It's a feast day. Have mercy on my young men and, and give, us, give us something. So I think understood that way, you can really have a better understanding of, of the context and how just basic hospitality, especially on the superabundant wealth of, uh, of Nabal, this isn't out of line. It's not out of line, I don't think, um, for David to make this request. And, and again, David's making the request on behalf of his men, too. So... Uh, worth, worth considering that angle as well. All right, well, however you want to sort that out. I mean, I don't really take any issue with it. I don't see it as a point of tension in the text really whatsoever. But this is David's request. And then uh, verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Uh-oh, that's not good. Who is the son of Jesse? And that's, um, usually that's taken up on people's lips. Apparently, Jesse just was a man of no account, really. Um, he wasn't one of the elders in the city. This is usually taken up as, as kind of a, 
a slander, it seems. Um, it's parallel, isn't it, to, uh, to that accusation against our Lord Jesus, David's son, David's Lord, where they say, isn't this the son of Joseph? So who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. And that might too be like a, a slap in the face, like, like he sees David as a rebel against Saul. That may be there. And then verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Well, the short answer is, yeah, you should. I mean, why not? Particularly if you're rich. But I mean, you know, exceedingly wealthy, the way Nabal is described. Well, why wouldn't you? Because your name is Nabal and you're a selfish fool and you simply want to enrich yourself. And I mean, thus you can see a great foundation for our Lord's parable, if indeed he did have this in mind. So the answer is no, I'm not going to be gracious to you, nor am I going to uh, even consider it a matter of compensation. I'm not even going to be friendly towards you, which again, this is just... This is just stupid and foolish on so many levels, just stingy and nasty. Um, So that's what happens. Um, Verse 12, so uh, David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to to his men, (laughs) every man strap on his sword. Now this is not a good reaction on the part of David. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage, you know, with the supplies. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out uh, out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. Yeah, there's the key. The men were very good to us. So, there's, again, there seems to be some, like, some service rendered, some, some care or protection given. The men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. Not just from them, but I think, period. I think that the protection was given. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. Again, I think protection is implied there. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. And so there's really, I think it is quite explicit that that's what's going on here is while David's men are out in the wilderness, they see these shepherds and sheep and they're protecting them. So any reasonable person, any gracious person whatsoever would, uh, either one of those will do, <laughs> Nabal is neither, uh, would, would, give of, would give of some of uh, the riches for David and his men on this feast day. Uh, verse 17, now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man <laughs> that one cannot speak to him. Uh, goals to not be Nabal. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine 
and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Smart. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Yeah, pay attention to this. Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Mm. Well, in this text, we certainly see that David is a mortal. <laughs> Whereas heretofore, we might, we might be questioning that. We might be questioning if he is, has a super abundance of holiness, and indeed maybe he does. Uh, but here he certainly shows his human and fallen side. What would we say here? Uh, that this is an act of vengeance? Um, a very interesting, a very interesting and thought-provoking parallel, because uh, whereas Saul has returned to David evil for good. Uh, David is willing to overlook that on account of, of his being the anointed of the Lord. Here, a man who is not anointed um, returns David evil for good, and David wants vengeance. So that's, that's worth c- contemplating because it's, it's got at least a couple points of complexity to it. But uh, the long and the short is, uh, as we'll see from the text itself, like, this is not a good thing that David is thinking in this way and that David uh, has a sense of, hey, we protected your shepherds, you owe in return. You could at least be gracious to us on, on account of the feast day, but you're not. You know, whatever, whatever the swirling of thoughts in David's mind is, this reaction is not good, and that should be clear from the language And then uh, 22, the low point, God do so to the enemies of David. Now, it might not be wrong in itself, so I don't want to make too big of a deal about it, but it is in this text reminiscent of the language of Saul and reminiscent of the language of that egotism where the eye is not on the Lord and service to the Lord, but the eye is on oneself and service to oneself, righting the wrongs that oneself has uh, suffered. So again, I don't want to make too big of a point of that because it may well be used elsewhere in a fine way. But again, in this text, it ought to, I think, at least just sort of raise a flag in your, in your head of like, uh-oh, this isn't good. God do, David says, God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard not to see that as murderous too. I, yeah, it's just not good on, <laughs> on any level. <laughs> What's the study notes say? 
Uh, on 22, it says David's curse is immoderate. Yeah. Uh, if the LXX, that's the 70, that's the Septuagint, preserves the original wording, he is calling a curse on himself if he fails to avenge Nabal's folly. Later, God's vengeance is seen, but only against David's enemy. So, anyway, uh, yeah, that's verse. Anyway, that's verse uh, twenty-one and twenty-two. Not a not a high point uh, for David, um, but that's that's kind of the point of this text. It's kind of the point of this text. Verse twenty-three. We start to see this. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed onto the ground. She fell at his feet and said, "On me alone, my lord, be the guilt." Ah, it's incredible. Did she have any guilt whatsoever? No. Here's the here's a text for true feminism. True true feminism. What would false feminism be? She pulls out a sword and attacks David. <laughs> because, as we all know, to truly be a woman, you have to be a man. <laughs> Isn't that the sad state of feminism these days? Uh, but look at this beautiful femininity. Because what you actually have here painted in the narrative, and we've seen how good and godly David is, so, so take, this, uh, take this into account. But here David is acting foolishly, and of course Nabal is a fool, and that's what his name means. So you have these two fa- foolish males that are going to go head to head. And what do you have? You have this very wise, discerning, and beautiful woman. And she's going to come between them, not, not modern Hollywood style, with her sword out or her machine guns blazing, but actually as a woman. And she's going to use the power of woman to uh, bring peace and to actually turn David away from being a fool. So, like, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I mean, behold the power of, of woman in, in being the, the weaker, quote-unquote, as Scripture says. Therein lies her power. And therein lies the very close connection between woman and church. That the power of the church is in weakness. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And so this woman in weakness, what does she do? She gets down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And then look how Christ-like this is. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Well, it's not hers at all, is it? It's first of all Nabal's, and maybe second of all because of the rashness, David's. And she says, nope, let it all be on me. I mean, that's exactly like Christ. She's acting like such a pure mediator, such a pure type of Christ, to come and stop this violence by taking the fault herself. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant, she says. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. 
but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. You know, here's a beautiful woman too. Like, she, I mean, we, have no, we have no reason to believe she isn't, she isn't like faithful and true to her husband and all of that. Um, but when her husband is in clear error, she follows what is true and she does what is right. And she sees his error, she sees he's wrong, and so she does what's right. Uh, right in God's sight. So, I mean, here, uh, uh, really a picture of what a godly wife is. Uh, the scriptures would have a, a wife be o- obedient to the husband, but uh, as the husband has headship. But if the husband's going to, like, lead her contrary to the Lord, then, or lead her contrary to what's, yeah, obviously and manifestly godly, then she ought to do that rather than follow her husband. So, I mean, you have just this Beautiful, beautiful, rich picture in Abigail presented here. So uh, she continues, I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and here you see that Abigail, even though, you know, she's married to this uh, Calebite who's very rich and unfaithful, um, you, have, you have this woman who is very faithful and pious to the Lord. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So let your enemies, all who seek to do evil to you, be as Nabal, that is, let them, all be, let them all be cursed with foolishness. I mean, here's a beautiful statement because this is really the theological impact of this event. Because the Lord, she doesn't even take credit herself, it was the Lord through her. You know, through this, I guess he should get some credit too, this young man who runs and tells her everything. He should get some credit. She should get some credit, but she, she wants none. She gives all credit to the Lord. And simply says, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. See, David, if he enacted and went through all this, it was just, it was going to be murderous. It was going to be revenge. It was going to be blood guilt. David was, was here going to become a murderer. And look how beautiful she speaks. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. You know, that's like doing justice for yourself kind of an idiomatic way of speaking, but taking matters into your own hand, righting all the wrongs yourself. You know, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So that's the, it's always the proper biblical attitude is to let the Lord uh, measure that out and to leave that into his hands. David was not going to do that, um, but uh, Abigail's intercession and um, ultimately the Lord using her and she giving glory to the Lord is such a beautiful picture. And then verse 27, she continues, And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So here, all, like what you asked and more, I'm going to, I'm going to give to you for, for the sake of your men. And then verse 28, Please forgive the trespass of your servant. And again, I, I think here plainly, she means herself. 
Back to verse 24, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So she calls the guilt hers and she calls the trespass hers, even when it's not. So here's the, she imputes sin to herself so that if nothing else, the innocent servants of her husband might be spared. Ah, such a beautiful Christ-like move and statement. I mean, she is shining forth with the light of Christ in that he becomes sin for us in exactly this way. He's completely not guilty. He commits no sin himself. But on him is laid the guilt. And he reckons him, the trespasses of the world as his trespass, his sin. Uh, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah 53 says. Okay, so please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Ooh, would that that were true. But look how godly the sentiment is. You know, she's restrained him from great evil. She gives credit to the Lord and then shows how the Lord is using this to bless him further. She's just literally preaching, I mean, she's literally preaching the gospel here to David. Let the trespass be on me, not on, not on Nabal. And then by extension, like even David's trespass is removed here. This would, be a this would be like the perfect idea of love covers a multitude of sins. See how with her great love, love for the Lord, chiefly, but with her great love, she's covering a multitude of sins, the sins of her husband, Nabal, and the sins of David, who's got vengeance on his mind. Love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 29, she continues, If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. It's like safely kept in the, in the bundle. Let me see if the, I think the study note says something. Yeah, like literally a pouch or a bag. As a person puts a coin or a gem into a purse for safekeeping, so the Lord is careful to keep his own among the living. Yeah. So if men rise up to pursue and seek your life, the life of my Lord, that's David, shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. You're going to be safe in the Lord's purse. <laughs> and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So yeah, this is uh, like dismissed, like cast away, fired out, you know, so, thorough, so thoroughly is God going to protect David. I mean, this is just beautiful gospel. She's pointing him right to God, to God's grace, his mercy, his provision, the fact that he's, the Lord himself has stopped him from sin. You know, so that David, so that David upon hearing this gospel, will in fact act, act mercifully toward Nabal and, and cease from vengeance. That ties in with the exact themes we were talking earlier when I was mentioning Luther and Chemnitz and really the, the anomia of our times. David doesn't hear this gospel so that he says, okay, yeah, thanks, and then charges on to execute Nabal, but so that he'll cease from, uh, from the blood guilt.
Verse 30, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. So there's the blood guilt and there's the vengeance. So, so she's saying, you know, look, like, when the Lord has done all these things to you, you'll remember this and you'll give thanks. I mean, this is the sentiment, right? Not the, not the words, but you give thanks that you don't have cause for grief or pangs of conscience. And boy, would David have ever. I mean, that is just his personality. Such a wonderful aspect of his personality. We saw that. That's how we began today's session. He feels guilty over cutting Saul's robe for crying out loud. I mean, do you know, after, if David had gone through with this sin, even if it was many years later, would this not have eaten at David? Oh, it most certainly would have. And so he's spared that, and, and she's, she's mentioning that. It's just very sweet words again. Shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance in himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, when God has dealt well with you, David, then remember your servant, then remember me. Ah, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. I mean, there's, there's to be sure, uh, there seems to be a touch, especially in that last line, maybe a touch of romantic overtone there, as, we'll, as we're going to see in the text. I'm, not, I'm probably not far off with that. But acknowledging that, that's not the main point. It's not the main point. The main point of this text is she is a Christological figure. She's an, an embodiment of a perfect mediator. You know, in, and, and it's, uh, of course, a, a woman can be a type of Christ in many respects. And so she is that. Um, because of her femininity, she's also a type of the church and how the church ought to intercede between sinners and bring peace and proclaim the gospel and promises of God and the joys of, of not having uh, cause for grief or pangs of conscience later on. You know, the more aware of our sins we become, sometimes this doesn't happen to us until uh, we get older in life, maybe see the horizon of our life approaching. And we look back on life. And again, if the Lord grants us this grace, we, we come to deeply repent of so many things, so many things. And in that, in that grief and in those pangs of, of conscience and regret, we see, with, we see with profound clarity the true cost, the true cost of sin, and how we would, you know, as you think on it, you would, you would give almost anything to go back and do it right not do it that way. But of course you can't. We're not, we're not given that. So there's profound wisdom in meditating upon that so that we keep ourselves from sin in these present days. We keep ourselves from adding to that great debt and weight and burden that we ourselves could never pay. And yet, how incomplete the meditation 
unless we remember those sweet words of the gospel and the tender compassion of our God, who even while we were still his enemies, loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, and he set forth his own son as a propitiation for our sins, as a full atonement for every evil thing we've done, making right what we could never make right, forgiving what is in and of itself not forgivable, and doing so because of Christ, because of his love for us, and because of his blood shed for us. The heaven of heaven is the goodness of God. And we don't yet see the fullness of God's goodness, the fullness of his mercy to us. We only glimpse it and look at it as through a mirror dimly. And if ever that light even begins to shine through that mirror dimly, off that mirror dimly into our eyes, it is, it is overwhelming, the graciousness of our God. Not only does he so many times prevent us from sin, but even after we have fallen into sin, great and grievous sin, repetitive sin, sins we know better, the Lord reaches down with his strong arm and pulls us up, and he speaks comfort to us, and he washes us and makes us pure and holy in his sight. And, that, and he reminds us that 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 great list of things we would have done different and all the regrets of our, of our lives, that is precisely the list that he nailed to the cross once and for all, as he says through his apostle in Colossians. And he has put that list away forever. So we get to glimpse this God in such a beautiful way through the person of Abigail and through this wonderful story of her intercession. It's worth meditating on. It's worth thinking on. It's worth dwelling in. Such beauty, such wonder here. So I guess uh, there's no better place to leave off for today than to have in your mind uh, Abigail and all the different facets of this story and the bright light of God's grace and mercy that he shines upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Lord be with you.